Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, the Apostle has explained the deity of Christ, his deity and superiority, and even partly into chapter 2, he continued that discussion. And then, in verse 5 of chapter 2, until the end of chapter 2, our passage, the Apostle is explaining the humanity of Christ, the perfect humanity of Christ. Both of these are necessary, and both of these we must believe in order to have a sure and sound faith. In order for us to have a stable and wholesome faith, we have to believe in both the perfect deity of Christ and the perfect humanity of Christ. Neither of these can be compromised because they relate to our salvation, they relate to our reconciliation to God, they relate to the forgiveness of our sins, they relate to eternal life. Everything that we hold dear is related to the person and work of Christ. And part of that is the humanity of Christ. We may recall from last time that the humanity of Christ, though the Bible is very explicit on this teaching, on this doctrine, it is amazing that there are many people, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, who do not believe these doctrines, who do not even believe in the humanity of Christ and certain implications and historical facts related to the humanity of Christ. We spoke last time, for example, of how there are people who actually deny that he had human flesh, that he had a human body. Both in ancient times and in modern times, there are people, both inside and outside of Christianity, who think that the humanity of Christ was simply a, a phantom, simply a ghost. He was simply a spirit, but not a real human being. There are people who think that. As well, there are others who think that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. He did not actually die on the cross in history. It was somebody else who died, or it appeared that he died, or it was Judas Iscariot that died and not Christ himself. There are people who actually teach that, that he did not die on the cross. And then there are those, and this is more within Christianity in Protestantism, and but also in Catholicism, and even in orthodoxy, that there are people who say that their way and their wisdom is better than the wisdom of the Bible, and even the wisdom of Christ himself. Christ, if he spoke a certain way, or if he acted a certain way, there are those who say, well, actually, Jesus did it that way, but I'm going to do it this other way. The moment they do that, they are thinking that their wisdom and their deeds are superior to Jesus' wisdom and Jesus' deeds. It's either wisdom or foolishness. It's either righteousness or wickedness. So if Jesus did it a certain way, if Jesus said it a certain way, then we should do it that way. And when we do not, we are by implication, if not by explicit words, we are declaring that we are superior to Christ and our righteousness is better than Christ's righteousness, which would actually be defective. So he would be a sinner and imperfect. In these ways, our redemption is tied to the humanity of Christ. The Bible is explicit in our chapter that Jesus took upon himself human flesh. It's also explicit in our chapter and throughout the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus actually died in time and space. The Apostle Paul said that as a matter of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 13, 3-4. He said, Christ died for our sins. 
for our sins. He had to die because it was for our sins, for the penalty of our sins. And he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 asserts that fact. And then the perfection of Christ. The perfection of Christ will be more emphasized in other references in Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 4.15. 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Furthermore, Hebrews 7 asserts the purity and perfection of Christ. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. Therefore, none of these deviations and heresies of the humanity of Christ have any justification in the Bible. We must believe in the perfect humanity of Christ, perfect in every way. He took human flesh, he died on the cross in history, he rose from the dead three days later, and he did so for our sins, and whatever Jesus says and whatever Jesus does is perfect. Let's see our passage and how he ex explains some of these truths. Hebrews 2, 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might render those or might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that Christ has come into the world to die for our sins. We thank you that he is our propitiation. Enable us by your Holy Spirit to understand these truths better, to grow in our faith, and to glorify you. We ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, in verse 14, he begins with a few reasons, a few necessities, a few explanations as to why Jesus came into the world. Notice in verse 14, he says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. There we have our first reason. Since the children, who are the children? The children are you and me. The children whom God has given to the Son. Verse 13 just said that. Behold I and the children whom God has given me. The children that that is us, we who are the believers, we who are adopted into the family of God, we who are the elect, God has given us to the Son as children. Since we have flesh and blood, are we not humans? Do we not have flesh and blood? We have skin, right? We have bodies. We have 
tangibility, we have a physical nature, right? We have an immaterial nature and we have a material nature. We have the unseen nature within us, but also the seen nature, the visible nature on the exterior. We are both that way. In the same way, Jesus came. Since we have that nature, Jesus took upon that nature. He did not have a human nature before he was born into the world of the Virgin Mary. He did not have a human nature. He just had his divine nature, which is invisible and spirit. It says in John 4, 24, God is spirit. That is God. He is invisible, intangible, no visibility with God, unless he chooses by miraculous means to manifest himself, as he has done so throughout the Bible in many ways, especially in his glory. But Jesus, although he was like that before in eternity past, he took upon flesh and blood because we have it. That shows Jesus' condescension. It shows his love and mercy and kindness towards us. Why would the majestic and eternal God of heaven want to come into the world and identify with us with all of our weaknesses, with all of our frailties, with all of our finitude? Why would he want to do that? Why would he do that? You have to think of it that way, that Christ manifests this mercy and love and grace of God in simply taking upon human flesh, just to be just like we are. That is the first reason that he did so. He took upon flesh because we are of flesh. Therefore, we cannot deny that we are of flesh, which needs to be mentioned because there are philosophies and religions in the world that actually teach that you and I are unreal, that you and I are an illusion. You and I do not actually exist. It's just a mirage. It's just an illusion that we exist. There are religions and philosophies that teach that. However, none of those people will jump off a tall building. None of those people will, will make sure that he's not wearing his seatbelt. No, none of those people want to have the barrel of a gun facing him. Right? They will say those things, and it sounds lofty and intelligent. It sounds sophisticated, when actually it's utter nonsense and foolishness to believe that we ourselves do not have flesh and blood. Of course we do. We have flesh and blood, and it was necessary that Christ identify with us. He partook of the same. Then, a further reason in verse 14. Why did he take upon flesh and blood? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That through death he might render the devil powerless. You see, the devil, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is the god of this world. He is the ruler of this world. He is the one that has been given dominion over the world in a subordinate sense. God, who rules over all the nations, he has, in a subordinate sense, delegated some ability to the devil to wreak destruction and death in the world. It's not out of control. It's in the control of God. It's in the hand of God's powerful, mighty hand that the devil does what he does. Nevertheless, the devil does have that prerogative. He has been given that authority in order to put people to death. Now, this started in the Garden of Eden, did it not? It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
They had original righteousness. They had innocence. They had purity. They had sinlessness. They did not commit any wrongdoing for a short time after they were created. And then the devil brought about death. He brought about death and he had, in a sense, authority. A subordinate authority, nevertheless, it's an authority. He has the power of death. And the devil is seeking to bring people into death and misery all the time. He's seeking to do that day by day. He seeks to put people to death. He is the one who loves death. He's the one who loves chaos and misery, confusion, punishment. Uh, he loves all of these things. He loves to bring heap guilt and shame on us. He is the one who does all this. He is the one who is the most narcissistic being in the whole universe. He is. The devil is. And he seeks to do that in selfish ways because he loves death and he seeks to impose that death on all of us. But how is it that that authority ordained by God is removed from the devil and not only neutralized, but also smothered so that life reigns instead of death? How does life reign instead of death according to the will of God? It says here that through death he, Christ, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, according to Romans chapter 1, 1 to 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When he rose from the dead, that power and that power of, uh, powerful ability to declare that he is indeed the Son of God, and because we believe in his death and resurrection, we shall be justified, we shall be forgiven of our sins because of faith in him, we have this promise held out because the payment has been made and the promise is that eventually death will have no victory over us. Will have no victory over us. Initially, right now, it has no victory over us when we are justified by grace through faith in Christ. And it continues to have victory over us. That is, Christ's life has victory over us throughout our Christian life. We are being consecrated. We are being set apart. We are being sanctified, made holy. We are growing day by day in Him. That is the power of Christ's death working in us, rendering the devil powerless. And then ultimately, we will be glorified when we meet the Lord face to face. At that point, death will no longer have anything to do with us, according to Revelation 21.4. Tears, pain, sorrow, and death will all pass away in the full, complete sense for all of us, all of us who are the children of God. Death will have no place. And how did that happen? It happened because Jesus rendered powerless the devil. He rendered powerless the devil. John the Apostle tells us the same. He tells us the same in 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, verses 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil, to render the devil powerless, useless, 
and defeat it. And all of this is in stages. In the three stages I just mentioned. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Furthermore, verse 15, Hebrews 2.15. Not only to render the, the devil powerless, but also for us. 15 says, And might deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. He's talking about us. To deliver us through fear of death. Who does not fear death in one manner or another? Either we fear the thought of our, uh, our deathbed and the pains and the sorrows that we will face because of the, of the physical ailments and the physical discomforts that we will have. We will face it that, like that, and we fear that. Or it may be that we fear if we are persecuted and someone threatens to put us to death, how that might take place. It might take place through torture. It might take place through some kind of gruesome and grotesque means that our perpetrator perpetrates against us. We fear death in that way. But we also fear death in the ultimate sense. What happens to a person when he dies? Where does he go? Where does he go? What happens? There are only a few possibilities, right? There are only a few possibilities, but which possibility is actually true? And how can I know where I'm going to go before I get there? How can I have assurance and confidence, full conviction, that what I'm believing now is true about the afterlife? We fear death for that reason too. Where will I go? Until we have all of these uncertainties answered in Christ. Unless we have them answered in Christ, we have this fear of death and we are enslaved to that fear. We are enslaved to that fear of death until Christ delivers us from it. So he came to deliver us from that. That is why the faithful Christian, the true Christian, he does not care about the pains that precede death. He does not care if somebody threatens to torture him before he dies. And he does not fear what will happen to him upon death because he knows that the angels, just like with Lazarus, will carry him to the Lord will carry him to the Lord to be with the Lord forever. That's what the Apostle Paul says. I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. It's better than living here. And I long to depart, even though he was in a prison when he said those words. He longed to depart and be with Christ. So we have no fear of death. When we, in true faith, think about the promises of God, there is no fear of death. It only is lack of faith or a shaky faith that will cause the fear of death. Jesus came to take all of that away. So we're not enslaved to our fears anymore. Then he assures us that this is true. Verse 16. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. The New American Standard Bible says the descendant of Abraham, and that may be confusing. There are a couple of interpretations based on that word and also the verb in this sentence, the main verb, that is, to give help. According to the King James Version, it's not to give help, but in order to take upon. To take upon. He does not 
take upon the nature of angels, but he takes upon the nature uh, as a descendant of Abraham. According to the King James Version, they take the translation of the original word to mean take upon. So Christ did not take upon the nature of angels who are invisible spirits, but he took upon the nature, the human nature, of a descendant of Abraham, that is us, flesh and blood. He took upon that kind of nature. That would be according to the translation of the King James Version. However, primarily, translations render it the way I mentioned, and that is, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So, we will take it that way. Either way, it is true. Either of those interpretations would be true, biblically speaking. But in terms of more accurate translation or uh, a better understanding of what is being said, let us go with, he does not give help to angels. Now, if we take it that way, he does not give help to angels, that would also be true. Jesus did not come to pay the penalty on the cross for angels. He came to do so for us, not for angels. So he doesn't help angels, and he says, assuredly, we ought to know this with great certainty that he didn't do it for angels. He did it for the descendants of Abraham. And that's our second ambiguity in this verse. It should be, I believe, even though the original word is offspring or, or um, descendant in the singular, what he means is that there is a collective group of people. And sometimes in English, we have these distinctions in words. We could say fish to mean one fish, or we could say the fish of the sea to mean numerous fish, right? We use the same form of the word in both contexts to mean either singular or plural. We also use the word offspring that way. We could use the word offspring in English to say a singular person, or we could use it to mean plural, a group. My offspring, they all live over there. We might say, well, offspring, that's a plural in that context. Well, that's the way this original word is. So then we naturally have to ask, what is he talking about? And should we take it in the singular or in the plural? I believe that it is best to take it in the plural because he's talking about how Christ came to help all of us. All of us. He calls us the descendant of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham. So since we are all the offspring of Abraham, he came to help all of us. There we have the certainty. Why should we believe all these things? He's saying because it's obvious, it's certain, we, we can be assured he did not come to help angels, but he came to help us. He came to help us, that means he cares for us, he loves us, he's mindful of us, he wants our best interests. That's the point he's making. He came to aid us. Furthermore, notice he calls us of Abraham. Why does he call us of Abraham and not Adam? Why does he call us of Abraham and not Adam? Because he is anticipating in later places how we are by faith children of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 explains this. Romans chapter 4 explains this. The whole chapter of those two places explains how we are children 
of Abraham by faith in Christ. Just as Abraham believed in Christ, so we believe in Christ. And if we believe in Christ, we follow the example of our spiritual father, Abraham. Not physical father, but spiritual father, Abraham. And when we follow the example of our spiritual father, Abraham, this is why Christ came. He came to help us, we who are spiritual children of Abraham. He continues his argument. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Notice there. If he came to help us, then he had to be like us. If he came to help us, he says, therefore, he had to. It's a requirement that he came to be like us, his brothers, in all things. He had to experience finiteness. He had to explain weakness or, or experience weakness. He had to see and, and experience the things that we see and experience. Lack of food, lack of clothing, uh, persecution from people who misunderstand us, who berate us and slander us. These are the kinds of things that he experienced. He even experienced temptations from the devil. At the beginning of his ministry and at, and at the end of his ministry, in two very intense scenarios. At the beginning of his ministry, in the desert or in the wilderness, the devil tempted him over a period of 40 days. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's being tormented by the thought of death. And the devil is also there. He's there wanting to sift Peter like wheat. And he's there as a tempter as well for Christ or against Christ. The devil was there. But throughout his ministry, he was there. So in the same way, we are also tempted. We're tempted every day, are we not? And sometimes the temptations are intense. Sometimes they are insurmountable. That's the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil militating against us to bring us down. And it is in this sense that he had to be like us. He had to be like us. Why? The next clause that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. As we read earlier in chapter 7, Hebrews 7, 26 to 28, the regular high priests, they were people just like us. They had a position of authority. They had certain responsibilities. However, they were sinful people just like us who needed to be redeemed. And therefore, they offered animals as a token and as a symbol for the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. They offered the animals as sacrifices. Jesus offered himself, it said in that passage. So when he offered himself and when he experienced what we experience in terms of temptation, he becomes a suitable, merciful, and faithful high priest. Better than any high priest under the Mosaic Law. Better than any of them, he becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful, he can show us mercy. We deserve judgment, but he is merciful and withholds judgment toward us. Faithful in that he perfectly obeyed the law. Faithful in that he perfectly obeyed the law. The high priest did not perfectly obey. They were supposed to perfectly obey, and they were supposed to be models for the rest of the people, but they did not. 
perfectly obey. Jesus, however, did faithfully obey. Now, we might ask the question, did Jesus do this because he could not and did not know what we experience? Or did he do it simply to be an example for us and to be an assurance for us in a way for us to know God truly does understand. It is the second. It is the latter. And that is, God is eternal. He's infinite. His understanding is inscrutable. No one teaches him anything. He is self-sufficient. God does not need us at all. This is what the Bible teaches about God. For example, just read Isaiah chapter 40, and you cannot come away after reading Isaiah chapter 40 thinking that God is a petty deity or that he's a fickle deity or that he doesn't know our circumstances. You cannot walk away after reading that passage and think any of those thoughts. You will think that he is mighty, he is great, he is infinite, he is powerful, almighty in power, almighty in wisdom, almighty in knowledge, in everything. You'll come away knowing and thinking that. So that's why... When it says here in verse 17 that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, that he might, by example, by experience, show us that God does indeed care for us. Because we need to know. Not because God needs to know or experience anything, but because we need to know, we need to know by touching and feeling. That's why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And Jesus said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have life. You see, these are the things that the Scriptures teach because we need to know. We need to have this assurance. We need more confidence. And this is the way that God has assured us that he is merciful and faithful on our behalf. He has Christ become a high priest for us, experiencing everything we experience except sin, so that he might bring us to God. He died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3, 18. Furthermore, it says in 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is another reason he came. To make propitiation. Your, your Bible might say propitiation, expiation, or something of that nature. It basically means to satisfy the wrath of God because a payment has been made. A payment has been made a criminal deserved death. The criminal was you and me. The criminal deserved death. The judge, who is a righteous judge, the judge of heaven, sees that the law is transgressed. He knows that that, that law has brought chaos and misery to the person who perpetrated the crime, but also to all the people around him. So he righteously wants to punish the criminal. Well, how will the criminal not be punished? Only if somebody else takes the punishment of the criminal. Only if somebody else takes the punishment. So who took it for us? So that God's wrath, the judge of heaven, is not angry or wrathful against us 
anymore because of our sin. Because of Christ. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for us. He died so that God is no longer our foe. He is no longer our enemy. God is now our friend. God is now our father. God is now our loving father, our caring father, and even a disciplinary, uh, disciplinarian kind of father. That's the kind of father he is to us because he loves us. He loves us now but because he sent his son to pay for our sins. It also says it is for the sins of the people. The people. Notice that. The people. In the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, there were animals that were sacrificed, and even one animal that was sent into the wilderness, the scapegoat sent into the wilderness, after the high priest had confessed the sins of himself, his household, and his nation on the animals. After that, the animals were sacrificed or sent away. And in that sense... Just as the high priest did those things for the people, which people? The people of Israel. Not for all the nations of the world, but for the people of Israel. The apostle uses that analogy to express this truth, that Jesus paid for our sins, the sins of those who are his sons, verse 10, who are the ones sanctified, verse 11, and also verses 11 and 12, the brethren, the congregation, the children that God has given to Christ. Verse 14, the children. Verse 17, the brethren. And now in verse 18, the people. He's talking about a specific group for whom Christ came to die. And that group, the people, are you and me. That is, the believers, the chosen, the elect, those that were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He came for us, to die for us. And he came to die so that with certainty, with definiteness, we will be saved. Not with any possibility, not with any uncertainty, but with certainty he came and paid the penalty so that we certainly will believe in him and certainly will receive eternal life. That's why he came to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for us. 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. An another reason is given, which is similar to what was just said in verse 17. Since he himself was tempted in that in which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We are prone to thinking that our experiences are unique, our experiences are not understood by God, our experiences of temptation and suffering are those which are unbearable even, that we cannot bear up with these, we cannot tolerate them, that we need to give up, we need to just walk away, we need to just go live it up, live, live life the way we please, live life the way everybody else is living. Why endure all of these experiences, all of these sufferings, all of these persecutions? That's what goes on in our minds often, does it not? But this verse is saying 
that because Jesus was tempted, not that he sinned, but that he was tempted, he experienced the kinds of things we experience, yet he resisted. He withheld. He did not commit any sin. He said to his enemies, which one of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? You can't do that because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 29. So why should we look to Christ? Why should we look to his humanity? Because it gives us further confidence that Jesus is able to aid us. He's able to help us. He will take care of us. He knows. So we shouldn't say, it's unbearable, I'm going to give up. We shouldn't say, well, those people are going to come and attack me, I'm going to give up. We shouldn't say any of that. Because he's able to come to our aid. He will take care of our soul, no matter what people do to us. The Apostle Paul said in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4.18, 2 Timothy 4.18, he said, when he's about to die and be executed, he said, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom and deliver me from every evil deed. Now, why could Paul say that? Paul could say that because he knows Jesus was delivered. On the third day, he was delivered. He fulfilled his purpose in persecution and death, and then he was delivered. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And in the same way, we will live. John 14, 19. Because I live, you shall live also. John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. That's us, if we believe in him. He's able to deliver us, come to our aid, no matter what we experience. So let's go to Him. Let's pray to Him, not have confidence in ourselves, but draw near to Him. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Certainly, we are needy people. So we ought to go to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why it's important for Jesus to come into the world. Let's believe it. Let's hold on to it tenaciously. Let's not waver in our faith. Let's hope in Him and in Him alone. Not in any other man, not in any other religion, not in any other philosophy, not in any other book. Only the Holy Bible, only the Word of God, only this Word of Christ. Let's believe in Him because only in Him is eternal life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.